Welcome back to Blessing in Disguise. This is episode three where we take on the, or no, excuse me, the Holy Trinity. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Um, in this episode, we essentially want to break down what is the Trinity, why is it necessary, and um, if you're willing to take it on somehow, whether that be in your religious life or in your secular life, what might that look like? Um, as a quick, quick disclaimer, when we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about this idea of a triune, triune, am I saying that right, Laurel? Triune? Yeah, sure. <laughs> this is a nice little moment where you realize how much I actually know about the Trinity. Three-partite. Three-partite. I think that's another thing I've heard. Three-in-one. It's like a... I always thought of it as a sweet deal, but um, a three-in-one God. And so, again, coming from my perspective, this three-in-one, this Trinity God, it feels very appropriate coming off of our zombie Jesus episode. Not only did we bring him back from the dead, but he's actually not actually one. He's three, but he's three-in-one, and all of a sudden we get into high school physics, which I did not do so well in. <laughs> so I come to this episode thinking... Do we need the Trinity? Like, is this just... I, I was a big fan of George Carlin in high school, and he has this wonderful bit on the Ten Commandments, and he says, and I quote, spooky language that's designed to scare and control primitive people. And so for George Carlin, at least, who um, is a very sarcastic atheist, um, you know, this this three-in-one Holy Trinity is is all smoke and mirrors that's used to make people... To control them, essentially. Um, another way that I've heard the Trinity explained is it's just a leftover from polytheism. Um, and then even gone so far as to say it's just a hereditary patriarchy made into theology, right? The father passes on to the son. So why not just make it one long lineage? Um, and then this other, as I was researching uh, the Trinity from my very reliable, super professional source called Wikipedia, um, it said that, this article said that scripture, the Bible, contains neither the word Trinity nor an expressly formulated doctrine of the Trinity. Rather, according to Christian theology, it, quote, bears witness to the activity of a God who can only be understood in Trinitarian terms. Now, I do not pretend to understand it, but I thought it was fascinating that you know, we think of the Trinity as this central element of Christian theology, and yet it's not actually in the Bible as, you know, quote, the Trinity. So this is why we have Laurel. <laughs> um, but, you know, looking at all these different ways of thinking of the Trinity from just a spooky theology meant to control to something that might not even be in the Bible, where does this idea come from? Hannah, I think all of the things you just said are like, very, very common. Yes. Um, the Trinity, it seems like this really bad math equation that like, just like we have to suspend belief about Jesus dying and coming back to life, we kind of have to suspend belief that like one plus one plus one equals one. Uh, so I think this is like a great topic and way to start this. Um, I think a distinction t that we can make in like trying to understand the Trinity better is this idea of like the Trinity as this thing theory and doctrine handed down, which is certainly how I have received it and how our time has received it, or as this like attempt to paint a picture of God as the people of Israel experienced God throughout salvation history. 
So this might take me a second, but salvation history is basically the story of God interceding in creation or affecting human affairs. Um, so really it starts with the myth of creation, but more concretely with the story of Adam or Abraham and Sarah and their like quest to produce this like people, this descendancy that like lives as God intended humanity to live. And when you say, Actually, sorry to interrupt the, just really quickly to understand as you go, when you say God interceding in human affairs, that could be any way of understanding um, the inexplicable, you know, where we come from and why it rains to where life comes from. Or, is that the well, idea? Well, yeah. So like the creation myths are part of the Bible, but like the actual historical events start with Abraham and Sarah. Okay. When God says, you know, go move to this place where the land will flow with milk and honey and I'll give you as many descendants as the stars. And you start to have this lineage of like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whoever comes after Jacob, um, of like actual historical people and tribes that like we know of. So it seems like um, chronologically that's the beginning of salvation history. But the oldest biblical text is actually an exodus, and it's actually the song of Miriam after the people of Israel have escaped from Egypt, and it says she has a tambourine and she's singing like praise to the Lord who has delivered us. So the first experience that the people of Israel have of God is being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And there's a lot of theories about are the people of Israel an actual unified people at this point? Is it a bunch of different subgroups that like have this unifying experience and thus decide that there is one true God that they all have in common? There's some debate about that, but the fact that like the the whatever became eventually the people of Israel's first experience of God was this unifying anti-empire love that that freed them from slavery. Um, that's the beginning of salvation history. And then as you go throughout the patriarchs and throughout the prophets and judges and the kingdom of Israel and all of this, you have these attempts of the people of Israel to kind of improve upon or better understand how God wants them to live or how God wants them to care for creation or how God wants creation to flourish and be good. We talked about this in the first episode, the kingdom of God. So you could say that the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament of the Bible, is the story of this one people trying to pin down what exactly God wants them to do. And at this point, we're dealing with God the Father. We're dealing with someone who is superior and above, who begat creation, who um, provides for, and who's definitely kind of like unseen and up in the sky somewhere. It's kind of like the most common way of understanding God. So... After, as, as God the Father kind of continues to relate and intercede in the lives of the people of Israel, we eventually get to this moment in Jewish history where they're living under the Roman Empire and this guy Jesus shows up. <laughs> and, you know, throughout history there are probably many people who are Jesus-like. We talked about Romero last time. I'm sure there were pre-Jesus Jesuses, if you understand Jesus as someone who worked for the reign of God. Certainly people have done that throughout history. But... What's important about Jesus, I think, for, you know, my understanding is that the people of Israel were kind of at a maturity point where they were able to recognize Jesus acting out God's will. And also, like, Jesus came um, and, like, did a pretty darn good job of it. So you have this people who are trying to understand who God is, and then they run up against this guy, Jesus, who, like, reaches out to the lepers, who challenges laws that don't give life, who... um 
eventually is understood to embody and live out the law. So the Jewish people had been living for a long time with the law of God. And then you have Jesus, this living person who seems to be the human embodiment of law. So it's a different way of understanding God, certainly, that God became human, that God suffered, that God has summed up the entire human experience and made it divine. It's the same spirit, it's the same law, it's the same loving, liberative force. But instead of being someone up and above liberating us from Egypt, it's someone who is a human being and is with us. And then the Holy Spirit begins to be understood in this moment after Jesus' death, after Jesus' ascension, or, you know, once Jesus is gone, as people continue to try to live that way because they were inspired by him. So I think if we remember that the people of Israel did not receive the Trinity as a doctrine, they lived through this history and this experience, and in trying to describe who God is, they can't leave any of those three parts out. As, as people become... Christians or followers of Jesus or whatever, they've experienced God in these three different ways and they're all integral parts of who God is to them. So you can't talk about God and have it be a complete picture without talking about how God became human. Or you can't talk about God and have it be a complete picture without talking about how God is among us today, encouraging us to act in that way. Um, so that's kind of, that would be my like short answer is um, the Trinity as understood as God acting in salvation history, it's kind of a shorthand way of saying all of what I just said. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means to say all of our salvation history. This is what's happened to us. The Trinity is a lived experience of a God who is at once the unmoved mover, who is at once human, and who is at once spirit inside us now today. And just real, you said the unmoved mover. What is that? Or what is that? Mm-hmm. Um... That's like a Thomas Aquinas philosophy thing, like the principle, like to have anything, you have to have something that is unmoved and pushes it. It was kind of Aquinas's way or, or Aristotle philosophy from Aristotle way of like explaining what God is to Greek culture. Got it. Sorry to take us on that yeah. tangent, but it sounded You're good. It sounded good, so I wanted to know. Um, well, it's, so everything you've just described first makes sense to me, which is really exciting. <laughs> and then, Oh good. That's an important well, step. <laughs> but And it makes like, it, it feels, I don't want to say acceptable. That's the word that comes to mind. You know, it's something that my brain doesn't inherently sort of instinctually reject like one plus one plus one is three, right? It's like, Oh, I can, I can understand God as this father caring or even a maternal figure. If we're going to sort of try and be parent, a parent sure. a parental figure. Um, and then, you know, this experience of God in human form and then this, the resurrection piece that we talked about in the last episode. But the way you talked about it is specifically through this salvation history, right? So the Jewish experience as refugees from Pharaoh and Jesus specifically as this historical figure and a human experience of God. And then people who try to live Jesus's specifically message after he's gone is the Trinity then something that's uniquely Christian, like something that only came from these experiences? Or do you see pieces or, or forms that maybe it's, I don't know what the quadrinity or the, oh, we're just so <laughs> intelligent in this episode, but you know, are there... Language is hard. Language, yes. <laughs> are there, do you see pieces of the Trinity or the same type of philosophy in... Um, 
in Buddhism, for example, or Islam, or in other forms of spirituality and faith? Well, certainly not the exact same thing. Um, the Trinity in that kind of formulation, in my knowledge, is pretty Christian. But in a lot of religions, there's some, like, debate about are we monotheistic, are we polytheistic, what is holy, we're not sure, how do you talk about something you've never seen and maybe don't even know is there. Hinduism, for example, is probably the most common worldwide polytheistic religion, but in Hinduism there's also like an original god that the other gods are emanations of. So that sounds pretty similar to me. Um, Christianity professes to be monotheistic, but we have this three-part god, which is confusing, and then you explain it as three parts of the same thing, and then you're just getting into metaphysics again. So it's uniquely Christian, but it's not Christian to, only Christian to be confusing about what's up with God. Gotcha. So it sounds like we could either go <laughs> all the way into the deep end and get way too involved in semantics. But I guess then my question is, what happens if we decide, well, screw it? <laughs> what if we just, you know, similar, I think, to the the experience I had of the Trinity prior to talking to you is what that like is do we really like I just no <laughs> it just it feels exhausting to to dive into this thing if it's going to be a physics lesson what happens when we you know, forget or ignore the essence of the trinity story as you've talked about um, I think it can be so obtuse to folks and if it's something that's experienced purely through the ritual of church um, or you know in speech then it's it's easy to not go as deep as you just did in terms of really remembering the salvation history and where it comes from and all the different pieces. So I guess, um, have you noticed that something is distinctly lost when people forget that piece of where the Trinity comes from? Well, I think religion in general today has forgotten a lot of what the Trinity is about. Um, because when you forget about the Trinity, you kind of just stick with God the Father. And I think people commonly subconsciously even believe, you know, God the Father is the real God. The other ones are like just holy things. Um, and when that happens, we have a God who's very far away from us. We have this king God. We have a rule God. We have um, a God who's certainly removed from creation and not part of us. So when we forget that, we forget about salvation history, we forget about all the times God has acted in our history to be with us, and we certainly forget like what was most important about Jesus, that he shows us that we're called to also live in this divine way. Um, it's not that God changed with Jesus. Humanity or the people of Israel just got to a point where they were able to recognize that people who act, that human beings who bring about the reign of God a little bit more are acting in a very divine way. And we also forget that God acts in history to continue reveal who God is to humanity. We stop looking out for signs because if God the Father is already up in heaven, then we already know who he is. Mm -hmm. But if we're aware of the Trinity, if we're aware that God is active in our history and calling us to care for each other and love each other, then we are more prone to looking out for ways of doing that. Our understanding of God and what God wants from us is always changing and hopefully improving or getting a little bit more accurate as time goes on and in community we talk about our experiences of God. Hmm. Uh, not to to drop a, a bomb on you, but I'm I'm curious if whether it be your personal experience in El Salvador and the work that you did in Morasan, um, when you felt the 
in the presence of the Trinity or just, cause I think you're right. Like I always just think of God, even if I choose to believe or not believe in, in God as this thing in the sky, I think of God, the father, right? Anytime anyone says God, I think God, the father. And, and I, I'm not present to this concept of the Holy Spirit, for example, God present in other people. I try, but sometimes I don't do a great job and, and it doesn't feel as important or as real or as substantial as this God, the father, which is so enshrined in our culture and in our upbringing. And it's just, it's just there. Um, is there an experience that you've had where, you know, the Trinity was real for you, I guess? Um, well, I've got to say my first introduction to kind of what we're talking about was at in during undergrad at St. Louis University, we, our junior theology seminar, we read one book all semester and it was all about the Trinity. So I do kind of have a predisposition academically to kind of being aware of this stuff. Um, but as far as like lived experience goes, um, Ignacio Ayacuria, the Jesuit from the UCA, who wrote a lot and systematized a lot of liberation theology, systematized and reflected on a lot of what people in base communities were living and experiencing, came up with this idea of the crucified people, um, which is a pretty scandalous idea because that equates the people with Jesus or, or says that el pueblo, the people, serve a similar role in salvation as Jesus did. Um, and in the Ignatian spiritual exercises, Ayakudia calls us to, instead of thinking about how do we crucify Jesus, how do we crucify the people? How do we crucify the other human beings that we share the planet with right now? And I think it puts our faith in a much more ethical and moral dilemma. Um, because if I'm, if I'm praying or doing the spiritual exercises and I think, how do I crucify Jesus? Well, I certainly crucify Jesus when I eat too much and am gluttonous, or when I am lazy and don't do anything all day. And that amounts to a lot of individual sin and penance and a lot of like self-deprecation um, and guilt feelings. But if we think of how am I crucifying other people, how am I crucifying the people, if we really see Jesus in other people in that way, we're called to much more concrete action and much more concrete change that doesn't just leave us in this pile of guilt, but rather gives us a way to, to redeem ourselves and act differently. Yeah. I just keep thinking, and, and I mentioned this to you earlier, I keep thinking about Syria, and I think that's the question that everyone is dealing with, this, um, you know, the chemical and tech in Syria. And, and our world today allows us to watch the video of the children suffering and you know, suffocating to death. Um, I mean, we are aware, like we've never been aware before, of all of the human suffering in the world. And I think it's emotionally exhausting, not as an excuse, but as, as a fact. And a lot of people are left with the question of, I, if I um, allow this suffering to impact me, what do I do about it? And, and I don't assume to have the answer to that, but I think, you know, that's kind of where we're leading today is, okay, if the el pueblo, um, if they are the crucified people, if they are the Jesuses of today, and we are meant to see God in them, okay, like we need to recognize that and be present to it and allow ourselves to see that, right? So not turn off the radio station, watch the video, not ignore it. But then what? Like, what do you do? Um, and again, no answers, but 
um, that does seem to be something that we're more capable, at least with technology, if used correctly, we're more capable of being present to the crucified people than ever before, um, which could be a blessing. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, sort of, kind I've, of. Uh, yeah, I've got on some like crazy weeding rampages, you know, talking to co Weeding as in taking Syria. out bad plants from the ground, not... Yeah, Some, yeah, yeah. Like, like ripping <laughs> just to clarify weeds out of the soil and yelling about Syria. Um, I was telling you before I was I listened to this podcast and the guy was interviewing this journalist who's based in Lebanon. She's in Beirut, but she's reporting on Syria and she kind of took the interviewer through the whole you know history of the conflict. And at the end, he was like, "Well, thank you so much for being up late. I know it's um, I know you must have had a long day and you're very tired." And she was like. Thanks for being interested, <laughs> which just really, really struck me, you know, with all of this like horror going on, she's surprised that we're interested. She's surprised that this interviewer is interested. And I think that's where we start. I think we be interested in the suffering of others or we take on and make ourselves look at and see the suffering of others as if they were our family or if you want to take another step, God, because God came into the world. God wants it to be different. Yeah. I, I, get, I have one more question, um, I think, for you, which is, you know, given this way of looking at the Trinity and given everything that is out there in the world, right? So if we take on this concept of not just looking up to God, but looking out into the world and into um, the faces of God's people and the crucified people, is there uh, like an, an empowering way to interpret the Trinity? Is there a way to not just see this as an emotional, physical, spiritual burden that is a lot easier to just ignore and put on Netflix and, you know, forget about it? Um, you know, are there ways to concretely incorporate the, I would call it a lesson, or um, places where we already see the celebration of a triune God in secular society, for example? You know, I'd have to think about this a little more, but kind of what that question makes me think is that um, understanding the Trinity from a more historic point of view, I think leads us to a similar place that like secular humanism or materialism leads us in the sense of you have to go off what your experience in history is. Um, if the Jewish people's experience in history is that there is a God who wants us to be liberated from oppression, then that's all we have to work on and that's what we have to do. Um, secular humanism recognizes inalienable rights in other human beings and that's very similar to God is literally in others' humanism. Um, so I think there are certainly, I think taking on the Trinity in a more literal and historical sense um, can actually re lead to some really good dialogue points with secular humanism and materialism. Hmm. It just, it makes me think of um, my my former boss at Christos Al Noah Bullock who would just say, you know what, just put your head down and respect rights. <laughs> when you don't know what to do, just put your head down and respect the rights of others. And then at least, you know, you're doing the bare minimum. <laughs> you're not violating anyone's rights. Um, yeah. And some I think days there's really a lot of really creative helpful. space. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, we're at about uh, sort of the end of time, the end of time. Wow. We're at the end we're of our time. We're at the time. end of time. <laughs> we're at the end of time. Um, 
<laughs> that got eschatological real fast. Yes. Not on purpose, I promise. <laughs> Although, speaking of eschatology, uh, next episode we will be diving into the Bible. We touched on it briefly this time, but um, we'll be really looking at the text, where it came from, and did God really write it? And do we have to listen to it? And all of other juicy elements. The Bible in 20 minutes. God, we have got big heads about ourselves. Yeah, I just, we're, we're, we're from the United <laughs> States. We're very efficient. <laughs> sure. Very punctual. We think we can do everything. Yeah. Well, again, with the disclaimer that we will leave you with far more questions and maybe far more opinions about this podcast than anything else, but thank yeah, you. Hopefully it's like a starting point for discussion. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for listening if you're still listening, and we hope you stick with us. If you have any comments or thoughts, um, again, please leave us messages on Facebook or elsewhere, and uh, we hope you listen into the next episode on the Bible. Bye. <laughs>